Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, U.S. Senator Tina Smith on a new law involving semiconductors that aims to create jobs and lower costs in America. The state health department has a new report showing adverse events in Minnesota hospitals was sharply up last year and what farmers are saying about drought conditions in Minnesota. But first, this week's Farm Fest near Redwood Falls in southwest Minnesota gave candidates en masse their first major opportunity to demonstrate their rhetorical skills as the battle ramps up to the November election. Bill Werner is here with a recap. Scott, the U.S. House candidates for Minnesota's congressional districts with a little or a lot of farmland all fielded questions as a bunch on FarmFest's first day, and the 2023 Farm Bill repeatedly came up. Republican Congressman Pete Stauber from Northeast Minnesota's 8th District said crop insurance... It is a must, but what we can't do is tie it to mandates involving climate change or the Green New Deal. Democratic challenger Jan Schultz responded there is a lot to improve in the farm bill. Make sure that our programs are based on commodity prices as well because of inflation of input costs and other expenses farmers are realizing. The biofuels issue sparked brisk debate. Second District Democratic Congresswoman Angie Craig. I'm the first member of Congress to ever in the history of this Congress pass a bill that would allow for year-round sales of E15. Republican challenger Tyler Kistner fired back. Wasn't it Trump that passed E15 year-round and then it was the courts that got rid of it? And yet we are trying to push a bill with a Democratic-controlled Congress and White House and they can't even get anything passed. The U.S. House race in Minnesota's 2nd Congressional District, Twin Cities' southeast suburbs and portions of southeast and south-central Minnesota is considered one of the tightest in the nation. Democrats and Republicans took the expected political shots. My good friend and colleague Tom Emmer didn't tell you that that's in the bill he's complaining about. There's one party that can solve the inflation issue, solve the crime issue, and put all of you back in charge of our future. That's the Republican Party. Some of what these two parties were doing to our country, they're tearing our country apart. It was more about the Republican Party or the Democratic Party than being Americans. That's Travis Bull Johnson, the Legal Marijuana Now Party's candidate in the 7th District in western Minnesota. A debate on FarmFest's second day between the two major candidates for Minnesota governor was a slugfest from the opening gun. Democratic Governor Tim Walz touted one Minnesota and bipartisanship. I am the first governor in Minnesota history to never issue a veto. That's because compromise is a virtue and not a vice. Republican candidate Scott Jensen responded, You don't have to do a veto if you have other people doing your dirty work. If they're caught on a hot mic saying, well, we can't vote for this even though we've been working on this for five months we had some compromises worked out but we can't do it because he won't let us one of the first questions was about the future of farming governor walls said it's a false argument that it's family farms versus larger operations we in minnesota are proving that there's room for everyone and that the market is going to drive where we go in those solutions governor walls has commented that this is a false argument between family farms and that this is not a false argument Over my dead body will Minnesota ever sell farmland to foreign corporations. Count on it. Government's response to the COVID pandemic sparked a flashpoint when Jensen and Walls were asked, how will you make sure more seniors in care facilities can stay close to home? Walls pointed a finger at Senate Republicans. We have a budget 
and it is simply waiting to be signed. Walking away from the fixes for political reasons is hurting these nursing homes. What we did by locking nursing home patients into their facility and watch them die alone, frequently bathing in their own stool and urine, is our legacy to what we did with COVID. This is what we did. Never again. The two arrivals for governor held off until their closing statements to slug it out over Minnesota's troubling crime rate. Republican Jensen said more cops on the street, judges who stick to mandated sentences. This has got to stop, folks. There was a teenage boy killed last night right by the light rail downtown just before the Twins game started. we got to enforce the law. Got to. Democratic incumbent Walls accused Jensen of meddling in end-of-session budget negotiations. Had someone not said kill the bill, there would be $300 million and three dozen more state troopers on the streets today. Moving on from that, Tuesday is primary election day in Minnesota, and many eyes are on the 1st Congressional District in southern Minnesota, currently an open seat after the death of Congressman Jim Hagedorn. If you live in that part of Minnesota, please take note there are likely two contests on the ballot for you on Tuesday. One is a special election to fill the remainder of the late Congressman Hagedorn's term through the end of the year. Democrat Jeff Ettinger is up against Republican-endorsed candidate Brad Finstad. Then there is a primary election to determine whether Republican Finstad or his GOP challenger, Jeremy Munson, will carry the Republican banner in the November election against Democrat Ettinger. So when you're in the booth, be sure to mark both sides of your ballot. At least that's true for most people. Y'all ready for this? Okay, it all starts with the boundaries of the 1st Congressional District changing because of population shifts in the 2020 census. If you live in the large portion of the 1st Congressional District where the boundaries have not changed, both the primary and the special election will be on your ballot. If you live on the edges where the boundary lines have shifted, maybe putting you into the 2nd Congressional District or taking you out of the 2nd Congressional District and moving you into the 1st, then you'll see only one of the races on your ballot. Got that? Well, if you do, you're doing better than I am. But take heart, your house or apartment is still where it has always been. A group of judges has just redrawn the lines around you because, guess what? Republicans and Democrats at the legislature could not agree. Now, how about those candidates? The two Republicans vying to be on the ballot this fall in the 1st Congressional District squared off this week at FarmFest. GOP candidate Brad Finstead says he hears over and over that what's most important to farmers is risk management. So from a crop insurance aspect, we have to make sure that the Farm Bill is fully funding and fully engaged in the needs of the farmers when it comes to risk mitigation. Republican Jeremy Munson challenging Finstad in Tuesday's primary election says risk mitigation must be balanced against excessive regulations put on farmers. These have to be in balance and currently they're not. We have more regulations out there. The stick is bigger than the carrot. Democratic candidate Jeff Ettinger was diagnosed with COVID and could not participate in this week's FarmFest forum. But Carleton College analyst Stephen Shear says Ettinger really needs to win the special election to fill the balance of the late Congressman Hagedorn's term in order to have a shot at winning the November election to represent the first district for the next two years. Whoever wins to finish Hagedorn's term definitely has a leg up in November because they will be the incumbent and they will have several months to use the office of the incumbency 
uh, to boost their reelection effort. That's Carleton College analyst Stephen Shear. But wait, there's more. All Minnesotans have the opportunity in Tuesday's primary election to decide who will carry the Republican banner in November against Democratic Attorney General Keith Ellison. Will it be Republican-endorsed Jim Schultz or GOP challenger Doug Wardlow? Keith Ellison would make short work of Jim, but Keith Ellison fears me. Says Wardlow. Schultz says about Wardlow. My primary opponent is a candidate who has now lost three elections straight. And fundamentally, this race needs somebody who can win in November. We have to win. We've got to beat Keith Ellison, and I'm the candidate to do that. And Scott, we'll see what happens on Tuesday. Indeed we will, Bill. Thank you so much for that report. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives. Who are we? We're your neighbors, co-workers, and friends. That's right, we live and work in the community, too. Because of that, we're committed to making sure our electric services stay reliable, affordable, and safe. Throughout the state, Minnesota electric co-ops work independent of each other, but with the same goal, provide power to Minnesota. You have so many other things to worry about. Your electricity isn't one of them. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives, bringing power to the people of Minnesota. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and I'm proud to be a book person. How do I choose a book? Sometimes it's the cover, sometimes it's the title. I guess I'm pretty visual. If a book's really impressing me and the writing is really good, I will peek and see what the last paragraph is. Because the endings of books should rock you. I am a book person. And if you're a book person, too, read to a child and spark a lifetime of ambition. Join me at bookpeopleunite.org because reading is fundamental. A public service announcement brought to you by Reading is Fundamental, Library of Congress, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. The CHIPS Act was signed into law by President Biden this week. The bipartisan bill aims to bring back the manufacture of semiconductors to the U.S. Senator Tina Smith was instrumental in getting the bill across the finish line. I recently spoke with her about how the CHIPS Act will create jobs, lower costs, and protect America's national security interests. Well, so let's start from the place that modern life depends on semiconductor chips, whether it's your car or your coffee maker or um, the medical devices that you rely on or um, the equipment that our National Guard members rely on. Everything needs semiconductor chips. And it turns out that the United States is only manufacturing about 12% of the world's semiconductors. That's down from almost 40% several decades ago. So this puts us at a significant disadvantage. Um, And most of the semiconductors in the world are uh, manufactured in uh, four countries in Asia. So what happened is that we passed this very significant piece of legislation, broadly bipartisan, to bring chips manufacturing back to the United States. This was very strongly supported by our military and by the business community and by our um, intelligence community, all who said this is going to be important for Um, our national security and the security of the supply chains for the products that we rely on. And of course, it'll be great for American jobs. As far as when we can start to see uh, the results of this significant change, how soon might that be? Well, um, big investment decisions by the uh, global chip manufacturers are already being changed by this um, legislation being passed. Take, for example, a company like Intel They have been waiting for this legislation uh, to be passed before they would break ground on a multi-billion dollar chip uh, factory um, in the United States. And now they're moving forward because of this. And, you know, understand that 
China and uh, Taiwan and the other big um, the other countries in Asia um, spend billions of dollars subsidizing this industry sector. So if we want to be competitive and we want to have those menu those these chips made in the United States, um, we have to get in the game, and that's what this does. I think it's going to have a huge impact over not only in the short term but in the long term as we want to make sure that we um, stay on the cutting edge of innovation for this um, crucial technology. You talked about the potential for this to add um, a lot of jobs and money for the economy. Do we have a sense of just exactly how many jobs it may create and, and what it might mean to bolster the economy? Well, so independent experts tell us that this investment will create about a little over 40,000 direct jobs. Um, and will support an additional 280,000 jobs. So those would be jobs in companies that are advanced and um, helped by this manufacturing happening here in the United States. And they say that ultimately this will add an estimated almost $25 billion annually to the U.S. economy. So uh, the impact of this will be really significant. And, and another thing that's interesting about this um, and this part of the bill is getting less attention, but it's very important, is there will be significant additional funding for uh, workforce training and also for uh, uh, research uh, into the next big thing for technology. A lot of that research happens at a big uh, research institutions like the University of Minnesota. So that's another way that I think Minnesotans will be benefited by this. Yeah, that kind of segues into what I was going to ask next, which is what kind of direct impact might it have on, on Minnesota's economy and, and jobs for Minnesota? If you could maybe just elaborate on that just a bit. Well, so first I think about how everyone is so concerned about costs and how costs are going up. One of the reasons that costs for automobiles, for example, have been going up is because of a significant shortage of semiconductor chips, which slowed down manufacturing of American-made cars and drove up prices. The more that we have control in the United States over that semiconductor uh, production, the more stable our price is going to be. So that's going to be a direct um, benefit to Minnesotans. Um, I think a lot, I've talked about this a lot with um, Minnesota's um, farming community. Of course, their farm implements and precision agriculture relies heavily on semiconductor chips. Many folks are having a hard time getting that, their equipment um, repaired or um, you know, finding new equipment, and that is because of uh, shortages of semiconductors in part. So this will be another way that folks in agriculture will be, um, will be helped by this. And then I just think we all benefit from the improved national security from knowing that these semiconductor chips are not made by China or one of our big global competitors who could either turn off the supply if we you know, got into a, a situation of conflict or could potentially be using these semiconductor chips as a way of um, spying on us. I'm just very glad we got this done with strong bipartisan support. And it's been a productive month or two in Congress and getting this done and the gun safety and mental health legislation passed, getting the Veterans Health Care Bill passed, the PACT Act. We've had, a, we've had a productive couple of months and that feels good. Thank you to my guest, U.S. Senator Tina Smith. We'll have more Minnesota Matters after this.
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. It's me again, Scott Peterson. A new report from the Minnesota Department of Health this week showing adverse events and instances of patient harm rose last year. In 2021, the total number of reported events increased to 508. That was up from 382 the previous year. I spoke with Minnesota Nurses Association President Mary Turner about this disturbing report. Well, I think also in the report, it it directly correlated those adverse events uh, to due to unsafe staffing, and this is this has been something. I mean, it's ve- actually very gratifying to finally see that the research that we have done for years is finally appearing in the press, and um, it's not it's not good that we've had all these adverse events. But just certainly during the pandemic, um, as our short, as our staffing got worse and worse, and and a lot of that was because um, a lot of nurses leaving the bedside for various reasons, and unsafe staffing is one of the number one concerns why uh, nurses have left the bedside. So um, th- this this report, in one sense, is like. Um, total justification for what we've been talking about for over two decades in the nursing profession here in Minnesota. So um, that being said, it, it it's very alarming that at the bargaining table right now, because there's almost 15,000 nurses at the bargaining table, uh, that all of our proposals that have to do with staffing and and pandemic preparedness and um, you know, different things to keep nurses at the bedside are being ignored. And here we have this report that come out that said, you know, and it's it's not that it's, those adverse events weren't because nurses were lazy or they weren't paying attention. It was that they were doing, putting, taking on more tasks than were safely uh, appropriate for them to take. Let me be very clear about that. Uh, Mary, we've talked about this very issue several times in the past, and I'm uh, obviously uh, it's something that's been a concern of yours for quite some time. Um, how confident are you that now that this information is out there, first of all, that you'll finally be heard, and then secondly, that something will actually be done about it? Well, like I said, it, it is huge to me because I, I know a lot of these people on the uh, Minnesota Department of Health, having been on the state COVID task force, it is, it is, it's a relief to me that uh, a department like that is coming out and saying that there's a direct correlation. I mean, I, I think it, it lends a credibility. It's not just an issue that, oh, union nurses are going on about this. You know what I mean? That's what it tends to be in the past. Oh, this is just, this is M&A. I mean, like the non-union hospitals don't have the same problems? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think this report only only um, uh, zeroed in on hospitals that were unionized. I'm sure it was taken from all the hospitals all across Minnesota. So that's what it's been in the past, that it's so easy for people to say, well, this is just a union issue. You know, and this is just the unions making this trouble. So to have the Department of Health come out and um, say this is huge. It it validates um, whether you're union or not. It validates just what is going on in our hospitals.
So, Mary, in order to sort of improve staffing and retention, what needs to happen? First of all, they need to be have, let nurses be a part of the process. You know, I, I don't know if I've explained this before, but we use something called a grid. And you take how many patients are on the floor, and then this grid divvies up how many patients each nurse will take. And I can use, mine is probably the best example. I work in an intensive care at North Memorial in Robbinsdale, and it is safely, I'm safely able to take care of one to two patients depending on the acuity, but normally two. There are many places around the state, and I know, especially up in like um, in uh, Duluth, et cetera, and some of the other um, rural areas, where they're starting to want the, uh, the nurses to take three patients all the time. And the studies have shown time and again, if you give ICU intensive care more than two patients and you start to give them three and potentially four on really bad nights, that's where the adverse events start to happen. And you can, I can, we can print off reams and reams of studies to prove this. And well, so th that's the easiest example to give you and anyway, that's what they, they want us to take on more with less resources and less staff. And um, that uh, you wonder what their top priority is. And I, when I say they, I mean hospital executives and CEOs and, and the boards that run the hospital. You wonder what their motivation is. Is it the patient's? Is it the staff to make sure they stay safe and don't lose their license just trying to do their job? Or is it profit? It's a question we'll be looking at in the days and weeks ahead. Thank you again to my guest, Minnesota Nurses Association President Mary Turner. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Did you know that more lives are lost to lung cancer each year than breast, colorectal, and prostate cancers combined? Lung cancer will claim more than 135,000 lives this year. But new treatments have improved survival for many with the disease and offer new hope for many more. So does lung cancer screening with low-dose chest CT. The American Cancer Society and most major professional organizations recommend that adults ages 55 and older with a long history of smoking, even if they have quit, should talk with their doctor to learn more about lung cancer screening. Lung cancer screening saves lives by detecting lung cancer early when it's more successfully treated. So, ask your doctor if lung cancer screening is right for you. And if you smoke, ask your doctor to help you quit. Visit the National Lung Cancer Roundtable website at nlcrt.org. That's nlcrt.org. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. Drought conditions continue to persist over much of Minnesota, and there's growing concern about the impact that's having on crops for farmers in the state. MNN correspondent Mark Dornkamp caught up with University of Minnesota Extension Crops educator Dave Nikolai at this past week's Farm Fest in Redwood County. Nikolai offers some perspective on how serious the drought conditions currently are. Well, I think it's it's variable. It, typically, when you go across the state, if we go to the very part of eastern Minnesota, the 7-9 county metro area, and that, that east central Minnesota, it's very dry. And some of those lighter soil types, the corn's been wrapping and, 
And I, I think we're going to take the toll as far as the yield if we don't get some rain uh, soon. Other parts of the state have good subsoil moisture uh, down below three feet. So that's really the key to their survivability. And that looks good. But we're, we're going to be pulling and, and mining that right now. So uh, that's a concern as we go from uh, the month of August into September. And some of those long-range forecasts look a little bit more on the dry side. Well, the weather obviously out of a farmer's control, but as far as what they can control, weeds, insects, disease pressure, anything to note there? Well, I think, first of all, obviously for farmers that can irrigate, they're going to take advantage of that uh, situation with that. Uh, weed control, primarily that's, that's pretty well done. You know, for the year we've got concerns over volunteer corn. Uh, some things they can do is getting ready for next year, and that is the field edges, water hemp, giant ragweed and other things do a good job on what I call a border control and in terms of that on the edges of fields, ditches, etc. Uh, insects really right now, we, we haven't had a soybean aphid infestation that we've had to be controlling, you know, from an insecticide standpoint. We're on the watch list yet for that. We're early August. It doesn't mean it can't come, but they can migrate around. We need 250 uh, aphids per plant on 80% of the plants, but we're not anywhere near that. So, um, <coughs> excuse me. So in, in terms of the uh, disease pressure, again, that's not been significant. There's been some fungicide applications on, on soybeans and some preventative things on, on corn. But generally with the dry weather, um, that's negated to a large extent. Latest crop update from USDA shows that the second cutting of alfalfa is, I think, over 80% done. And some farmers have started third cutting. How's the alfalfa crop shaping up? Well, really, really variable. I mean, and in, in again, in the eastern uh, part of the state, um, I've seen a lot of alfalfa really struggling to come back between that second crop good and that third crop. Some small grains are starting to come off. What are you hearing as far as uh, crop? Well, you know, the conditions, if they were planted early enough and if they had, uh, had their moisture uh, all along in terms of that, they, they were fine. Uh, we had some winter wheat that came off. I think that was, again, where they had moisture, uh, uh, fairly good yields. Uh, but we're still not completely uh, done yet in terms of either, you know, the oat harvest yet and, uh, and some of the spring wheat, because, again, because of probably later planting, especially in uh, uh, northern Minnesota. But I, from what I understand, that, you know, a lot of it is probably average yields. Minnesota, one of the nation's largest sugar beet producers, they had challenges this spring because of the weather. What are the feelings on the sugar beet crop? Well, you know, they're a great consumer of water. Um, and some of the places, uh, they look very good yet <clears throat> and very green. So I think that'll be uh, the, you know, the tale will tell. But, you know, if, if they have variability going in here the month of August, um, that may speed things up as far as, a, as far as a harvest. But preliminary people that I talk to uh, indicate that the size of the beets are coming along as as normal so um, you know we're looking for that uh, but that may impact the yield here again uh, you know to be told I guess to the month of August that's really going to be the tale not only for sugar beets but certainly even for corn and we think about corn filling out on the tips of the ears um, there's there's a lot of yield left to go yet get an idea and handle on what's that and the other last thing we did have quite a bit in central and western Minnesota is iron chlorosis and so take note of that, and, and, and really that's a, that's a variety selection. Uh, we're on the watch list for corn tar spot, uh, a little bit in Fillmore County that was reported early. Uh, but we got some traps out this year for the first time for the spores. Uh, we haven't seen a lot yet, but uh, we're, that's always a concern moving up from the south from Iowa. That's U of M Extension Crop Specialist Dave Nikolai with MNN correspondent Mark Dornkamp. That's going to do it for us for this week. Thank you so much for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.